weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, January 11, 2008. I'm Leslie Taylor. Dubbed the Indiana Jones of wildlife science by the New York Times, Alan Rabinowitz is the executive director of the Science and Exploration Program at the Wildlife Conservation Society based at the Bronx Zoo in New York. Rabinowitz has traveled extensively, concentrating his research efforts in places such as Belize, Borneo, Taiwan, Thailand, Laos, and Myanmar. He has studied jaguars, clouded leopards, Asiatic leopards, tigers, Sumatran rhinos, and other large mammal species. His work has led to the creation of many wildlife sanctuaries around the world, including the world's first jaguar sanctuary at Coxcomb Basin in Belize and the Tawu Mountain Nature Reserve in Taiwan. His work in Myanmar resulted in the creation of five new protected areas, the country's first marine national park, the country's first and largest Himalayan national park, the country's largest wildlife sanctuary, and a tiger preserve in the so-called Valley of Death. The Hukong Valley in Myanmar is home to one of the largest tiger populations outside of India, a population threatened by rampant poaching and recent encroachment of gold prospectors. In this lecture, recorded November 20, 2007, at the American Museum of Natural History, Rabinowitz talks about tiger conservation and his efforts to establish the world's largest tiger reserve. I want to take a trip today with with all of you to a relatively little-known country, at least a country which was relatively little-known until recently, a country that few people had ever heard of until recently and even fewer had ever visited, a country called Myanmar, known to most people as Burma until its name was changed in 1988 by the ruling military junta. By By the beginning of the 20th century, Myanmar was called the land of gold, the rice bowl of Asia. Unfortunately, several decades later, only several decades later, Myanmar would join the ranks of five of the poorest nations in the entire world. Unfortunately, this trend would continue until the present day. So much so that in 2004, the per capita gross national income of Myanmar was $222, 10 times less than that of Thailand, four times less than than that of India. But the amazing thing is that still, when one today steps into the confines of this incredible, remote, somewhat backward country, one finds deep traditional values. One finds a land almost where the clock has stopped socially, politically, economically. In fact, many scenes in modern-day Myanmar, especially in the backcountry, could well be the exact same scenes written about in, in George Orwell's 19, 1934 novel, Burmese Days. In the, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, I had been spending almost a decade in Indochina, surveying large cats, capturing leopards, doing radio telemetry of leopards, studying tigers. And the situation was dire. I, like many other biologists, wanted to get into Burma. Burma was the golden chalice. 
Burma was the country we all wanted to get because it was, it was thought at the time that Burma still had, this is in the early 1990s, the largest proportion of forests left of any place in the Indo-Pacific region, the greatest species diversity, and the highest rate of species endemism of any place in the Indo-Pacific. It took me about four years by hook and crook to get permission to get into Myanmar and work with the current government. It took about three years after that to really go where, where I wanted to go, where the forests were the richest, where it was, it was a, a biology explorer's dream, the northern forests of the Kachin states, incredibly rugged, mountainous region stretching all the way to the foothills of the eastern Himalayas bordering Tibet. This is where the Himalayan mountains ended, one of the, the least biologically explored places on the planet, where the Himalayan mountains running west to east stop, running smack into the China Plateau, running north to south. The people up here were correspondingly pretty pretty rugged. You didn't see the smiles. You didn't see the, the way of life with the people in this incredibly difficult area as you did in other parts of Myanmar. Furthermore, travel into that region at the best of times was difficult. Now, all of this time, my larger objective was always to do a biological survey of this northernmost region, this unexplored area. But my very specific objective was to continue my work from the rest of Indochina, trying to determine what the true status of the tiger was in what was now the largest country in Indochina and a country thought to possibly have the second largest tiger population left outside of India. What I knew from over 10 years of working in Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Malaysia, was that tigers were in desperate shape. What I hoped was that in Myanmar they'd be in much, much better shape and it would be the last great population we could find. Unfortunately, the other reason I wanted to go all the way up in the far north was because this was where the, the supposed Indo-Chinese subspecies met with the supposed Bengal tiger subspecies, which was divided completely arbitrarily by the Irrawaddy River. And it was the northernmost extension of this tiger's range in, in the region. Unfortunately, what we found was sadly what I was seeing throughout much of Asia. Tigers had been completely extirpated from this far northern region of Myanmar, that they were gone. Only the old men still had even stories about them. But the one thing that came out of this trip was that everybody who knew about tigers said, if you really want tigers, you need to go to this area here called, called the Hukong Valley, bordering the, the Indian state of Assam. Of course, most of the people actually didn't say you need to go to the Hukong Valley. They said, tigers are in this place called the Valley of Death and that you're crazy if you go there because nobody lives back there and people who go there die. It, it, took me many, it took me many years to actually figure out what they were talking about. But telling me I couldn't go into a place called the Valley of Death 
that was just the, the stamp saying I had to get there. Finally, in 1999, the government, the Myanmar government, after much prodding, gave me permission to go to the Hukong Valley. Although, for the first time, even, even they, they didn't even make me do this for, for, the, for, for the several month hike up into the far north. For, for the first time, the government made me sign a document saying that if I died, it wasn't their, their fault. Why a military government who's accountable to, to no one wanted me to sign that document is beyond me. But they did. And I signed it. As soon as I set foot in Ukong Valley in 1999, it was clear that this, this amazing area was unlike any other place I had visited in Myanmar or even in the Indo-Chinese re- region with unbroken forests stretching all the way to the Indian border. What I only started learning at this time was how much this incredibly remote valley, which almost no Burmese had even ever heard of further south and very few people had ever been to, what an incredible part this valley played in in history, known mostly to World War II aficionados. Because what it turns out is that the Hukong Valley, the only access into the Hukong Valley, is only one road in, one old dirt road that's in the same shape now as it was when it was built by the Americans in 1945. Because this Hukong Valley, this single dirt road, was once known as the greatest, and is now still known as the greatest engineering feat of World War II. Cost $160 million and was deemed by, by Winston Churchill and Lord Montbatten to be undoable. Until an American general, Vinegar Joe Stilwell, stepped up to the plate and said, we will build this road. The reason for the road being when the Japanese took over the the Burma Road, chased all the British out through the north, the Allied forces had no way to resupply our Chinese allies, Chiang Kai-shek, except by flying over what was famously called the Hump. The Hump is the northern part of Hukong Valley, part of this valley. Over 600 planes went down, Allied planes went down trying to fly the hump, and they had to find a better way. That better way was a road that Winston Churchill equated the building of to pulling out a porcupine's quill one by one. But but Vinegar Joe Stilwell got this road built. Unfortunately, it was finished two weeks before the end of the war, and it was only used by one convoy of trucks. But, but the Americans built it, and it is there to this day with, with old jeeps and airstrips and incredible things still out there. This was our only way in to the Hukong Valley. Now, this, this only took us so far. Once the vehicles couldn't travel any further, we took other means. We started using elephant. This picture is in here mainly for effect because anybody who thinks riding on an elephant through rugged terrain is fun has never ridden on an elephant. We, we rode on elephants for, for about three hours totally in the entire trip, and then all of us got off, put all our baggage on the elephant, and we walked. Then we would get from the elephants when the going got too rugged for the elephants, we walked, or we brought boats in to the Hukong Valley by elephant back, 
so that we could go up some of these incredible rivers because it also turned out that Hukong Valley was the watershed for the Chinwin River, the major tributary of the famous Irrawaddy River, one of the, one of the most spectacular and, and important rivers in all of Asia and the heart of Myanmar. Now, as it turned out, once I got into Hukong Valley, Hukong Valley was very underpopulated, but it wasn't depopulated. There were people living inside of Hukong Valley. Originally, in 99, they were very simple people, people that lived a very simple way of life, doing mostly slash-and-burn agriculture, many of them shooting prey, shooting animals with crossbows and poison arrows, but not out of touch with the outside world, as you could tell from the famous Casio watch that I find uh, on almost every tribal person I ever encounter any place in the world. Cassio wanted to do an advertisement about these watches because they are everywhere. Guns were not unknown among these people, but they were very simple, dangerous, homemade black powder rifles. In fact, many of the local people said they didn't use the guns for actually killing anything. They used it for playing because they couldn't hit anything with these guns because the backflash was so bad that they would often close their, their eyes when they were shooting, if they really wanted to kill something, they would use a crossbow and poison arrow. As soon as I went into Hukong Valley, in the first day of walking the old roads, walking some animal trails, one thing became clear. I saw something that I hadn't seen in years. I saw something that was almost, unfortunately, unknown throughout all of Asia. Animal tracks everywhere and tiger tracks. Almost every place along waterways, almost every ridge tops, tiger tracks. This place had tigers. And it seemed to have a better population of tigers than anywhere I had been in a long, long time. But in order to show that to the government, we set up what's called camera traps, specially built traps, which are, which are set off by, a, by an infrared sensor, by the animal's body heat, and it takes its own picture. Not always a great picture, but it takes its picture enough for us to see what it is. I could only spend three to four weeks during that first trip in Hukong Valley. That's all the government would allow me without thinking I would die if I spent any longer there. But it was enough. In fact, I didn't need any more. In this day of conservation, sometimes you cannot go with a lot of data. You've got to go with what you know to be true in order to try to get something saved right away. So after, after realizing how important the Hukong Valley was, I immediately sat down with my Burmese staff and said, we've got to get this area saved, or at least a piece of it. When you do conservation, when you set aside protected areas, and I've set aside maybe, or I've been involved in setting aside maybe 10 or 15 protected areas now in my lifetime, it's, people think there are papers written on how you set aside a protected area, what shape it should be, what you do, all the, all the, all the parameters that you think about. The, the, the bottom line is you sit around with your colleagues and think, how much can I get from the government? What can I ask for that they'll give me and not turn down? And if you get what you want too easily, it means you didn't ask for enough. So what can I bargain for? You always go for the most. So I did something I never did before. Up until that time, the, the, the largest protected area I had ever set aside was 1,500 square miles. Huge, a big area. 
we were going for almost double that here. I was going for 2,500 square miles in the middle of Hukong Valley. It was a dream. It'd be my best accomplishment ever, but it's what I felt we, we could try for given the Burmese government's state of mind at that time. Then I did what I hate doing most in my job. I spent six months to a year visiting the homes. That's a, the, that's a senior government official. He was. He's now either in jail or out of power somewhere. That's a, that's a senior Burmese government official. I spent time in their homes, spent time at restaurants, spent time in their offices, spent time in bars. I did whatever it took to try to convince them that this was the most important area left for much of their larger wildlife, Asian elephants, tigers, leopards, and it worked. In, Febu in, in February 2002, the Burmese government set aside 2,500 square miles, pristine jungle area with no people in it, because what I did was I worked on the traditional paradigm of conservation, the traditional model. Go into an area where you can clearly, it has clearly defined boundaries for you to protect, hopefully no people, and set it aside as a protected area, as a park or a sanctuary with the people outside and the wildlife inside. That was the paradigm of conservation I'd been brought up on. And then something amazing happened. Let me go back a little before I go to that slide. I was happy. I was, I, this had been, in 2002, I had started in Myanmar in 1993. This was almost 10 years culmination of my work. It was the largest protected area, almost 6, 000, more than 6,000 square kilometers. It was the largest protected area I had ever set aside, huge by any standard, size of a small state, it, it had tigers inside, had Asian elephants inside. I was actually planning my exit from Myanmar, figuring where I would go next in the world, what new wild area would I explore. But before the ink was even dry on this document, before they even gave me enough time to celebrate this accomplishment, I was sitting in New York and I got a very interesting, first a fax and then a phone call from my colleagues in Myanmar. And the phone call was a request by the Director General of Forestry inviting me to a secret meeting outside of Yangon about something. They didn't tell me what. It was a secret meeting. Now, you don't want to go to secret meetings in any government, in any country. But to go to a secret meeting, to fly back to Burma and go to a secret meeting in a military dictatorship after I had just gotten them to sign over this, wasn't something I really wanted to do. Not in a country where meetings, at this time, the law was that meetings of, by people more than seven was illegal. But it was the, the director general. It was the chief man in all of forestry. So I agreed. I agree. I mean, I was, it, it had to be something good, I figured. It couldn't be because actually if it was something bad and we got caught, I would be thrown out of the, the country. He'd be sent to jail. So I figured it couldn't be that, it, it couldn't be something bad. So I went up country and we met outside of Yangon and it was a meeting with the top forestry officials and I have, this has never happened to me in my entire life and I'm not sure I ever want it to happen to me again. At this meeting, they said, it's great what you did in Hukong Valley. 
but the reports have just come back about all your tiger surveys in the rest of the country. Because what had been happening was at the same time I was in Hukong Valley working on those surveys and trying to get the government to set aside Hukong Valley Wildlife Sanctuary, I had also, I and my colleagues had also trained up teams of Burmese to go out and survey all the other forest areas, large forest blocks in Myanmar, so I could find out where all the other tigers were in the other forest blocks. And what had happened is they got the report before I even saw it. And the, the report was that unbelievably, shockingly, there were no other tigers anyplace in Myanmar. Myanmar did have the, the largest proportion of forest of any country in the Indo-Pacific, and it was empty of its tigers, except for two places, Hukong Valley and one other place on the Thai-Burmese border called the Tenasserim Range. Those were the only two places left that seemed to have any real population of tigers left. I, I, was, I was blown away. That was horrible. But I figured, okay, we can still try to bring some back in, in, in the uh, Hukong. But what this meeting was about was the government turning to me, the, the director general, and said, why'd you only ask for 2,500 square miles? Why didn't you ask if Hukong Valley is the only place left in the entire country with tigers, why not all of Hukong Valley? Could you go to the government and ask for all of Hukong Valley? And I said, what do you mean go to the government? You are the government. <laughs> but I knew what they did mean. What they, they meant was, can you go to the dictators? Because at that point, I had the ear of the dictators. They did not. And, and I could actually try to get to the dictators and try to go for the larger ball of wax, the whole of Hukong Valley. Now, this was an amazing ask, let me tell you. And I didn't... I didn't, don't think I said hooray and jump on it. I actually was thinking of walking away. Because what they asked, we had set up that red we had gotten. That was a given. What they wanted me to do was to ask for what I'd surveyed originally, the whole of Hukong Valley, nearly, nearly uh, four times the size of the wildlife sanctuary, almost 9,000 square miles the size of the state of Vermont. The size of the state of Vermont. Now, that, that in itself wasn't that, wasn't that uh, intimidating. Well, what was intimidating is that all this outside of Hukong Valley had people in it, at, at least 15 or 20,000 people with schools and temples. It had tribal groups, tribal groups which, which didn't barely even talk to one another. Naga up in the mountains, Shan down in the lowlands, Lisu, the best hunters all over the place, going throughout the whole forest, and who had actually been one of the main tiger killers for the decades prior to my arrival there. This is what they wanted me to think about. Now, I did have to think about it, because I was going to be walking away from, from a shore wind, one of the, the, the largest tiger, 2,500 square miles was already the, the, the largest tiger reserve in the world by any standards by any standards, far larger than the largest one in India. But they wanted more, 9,000 square miles. Now, what I did know was that the old paradigm of conservation wasn't working. He, he, even though I had been following it, 
Go for the biggest chunk of area you can, where there are no people inside. Keep the people out, keep the animals in, hard boundaries, you patrol them, shoot at people. It's helped us save a lot of areas in this world. And it's still very necessary to protect wildlife in core areas. But the reality, which I knew after working 30 years in this field, was that for the big stuff, for the elephants and the birds of prey and the big cats, even a 2,500 square mile area was not enough. Hard boundary protected areas couldn't save the large migrations, couldn't save the large wide ranging species, wouldn't save necessarily tigers throughout Myanmar. If we wanted to save these animals, Somehow, and, and I and everybody in our field knew it, we just didn't know how the hell to go about it. You had to try to protect them and save them and set up new protected areas within the larger human landscape where you have your protected core areas, such as that wildlife sanctuary, but you designate large protected human landscapes where the people live and where the wildlife lives. It sounds wonderful. Trying to implement it, is the biggest nightmare on the face of the planet. But what else is there? Even though I had set aside this wonderful 2,500 square miles, I had not been able to take almost all of the natural grasslands. Hukong Valley had the largest proportion of natural grasslands left of any place in all of Asia. And these were outside the protected areas. These would go to agriculture if we didn't do something. So I agreed. I agreed. I said, I'll try it. I pulled out all my contacts, and I was able to meet with a man who I actually never wanted to meet with, General Kin Yun, Prime Minister Kin Yun, known also at that time as Secretary One, head of military intelligence, one of the longest reigning, most feared military intelligence networks in mainland Indochina. When Kinyun met me, it was not easy getting an audience with, with, with Kinyun. But when I did, he explained to me that part of why he gave me that audience is because in his lifetime, in his reign as Secretary One, people have asked him for many, many, many things. He said he didn't think he could ever be surprised again until he got a request asking him for tigers. When I... When I put in my request asking to meet him, he, he knew of my work already in the Hukong Valley. He knows of everything in that country. In fact, he knew things about things I'd done in New York City. He actually did. He actually, before he met me, he had a whole dossier on me, and he asked me about some things of my parents, how they were, because they were ill. So he knew just what I was there for. He asked me if Hukong Valley really could work. He said, I'll give you all of Hukong Valley, but you have to promise me that you will make it work. And making it work means you have to benefit, believe it or not, though he's a dictator, the law in Burma is that you cannot move people out of protected areas even if you want to. The law is that the people living inside a wild area, they need to benefit just as much as wildlife does. And he said, you have to make it work so that the people inside that area benefit more than they do now and have better lives as you save tigers. Can you do it? And I said, absolutely. And I was thinking, I have no idea how the hell I'm going to do this. <laughs> but before he said, 
He agreed he, he, would, he would sign it over. I said, please, don't sign it over yet because so much homework has to be done first. First, I have to determine what the number, if there truly are tigers in good numbers outside the wildlife sanctuary and what those densities might be. So we pulled in all of our Burmese tiger team staff, all of our, all of our scientists, and they were numerous who had been scouring the whole countryside for tigers, and we set up camera traps. And we set them up in such a way, I'm not going to go into it here, but there's a way to set up these camera traps in, in a scientific grid-like fashion so that you can actually determine what the numbers of tigers are in that area. And we immediately started getting some good photos of tigers. Then what you do, a tiger's stripes, just like, like a jaguar's rosettes, a leopard's spots, they're, they're a fingerprint. They're like your fingerprint. Because while the pattern is genetically determined, the actual formation is not. That occurs in the embryonic stages, in the fetal stages. So in other words, the fact that all tigers have stripes, that's, that's genetics. But the fact that no two tigers have the same stripes is the same reason why no two human beings have the same fingerprint. And that's because the actual formation of the fingerprint and those stripes occurs in the fetus randomly. So no two tigers are alike. So using pictures of both sides of any tiger, we can identify individuals and then get at numbers of tigers. But the amazing thing was, and the great thing was, which I hadn't expected, was that our camera trap showed us that this truly was an intact area. This, this truly was an intact area. Because not only did we get tigers, although not nearly as many as I had hoped and I knew sh should be there, but we got a full range of all of the other carnivores, all the other big species that should be there also. Leopards, the red dog, doles, bears, there were two species, the, the, uh, Himalayan black bear and the sun bear. And then, of course, the, the most important for tigers, tiger food. Tigers prey on large-bodied prey, and in this part of the world, they feast on samba deer, which goes 2 to 250 pounds, and huge, giant, wild pigs that also go 2 to 300 pounds or more sometimes. Unfortunately, something else came out in these camera traps. Now, keep in mind... This is now 2003, almost four years after I first set foot in the Hukong Valley. Also in the camera traps was the barking deer, and not just any barking deer, but the deer that, that I had discovered in, in far northern Burma, and George Amato had, had helped identify genetically, and we called the leaf deer, the second smallest, most primitive deer in the entire world. It remained unprotected and was in this area. But what I also found, which I had not expected, in this area that I had last been in, in 1999, where very few people had guns, and, and I didn't see a lot of people killing things, was in the camera traps were hunters walking by. Hunters with guns carrying things like this skinned out monkey, or just people walking with guns, the same place as the camera traps. I didn't understand it right away until I went back into Hukong Valley and saw why. Because Hukong Valley was no longer the, the isolated no-man's land that it had been in 1999. Just in, the path of a, just in the process of a few short years, the government, while they were asking me to protect all of Hukong Valley, at the same time, was now opening up Hukong Valley. 
They had rebuilt all the bridges. They would rebuild all the bridges in Hukong Valley. And now there were ferries ferrying people across major rivers. Now, that necessarily wouldn't have been bad. In fact, if I had gotten Hukong Valley protected, I was going to rebuild those bridges also, and I was going to reopen that, that road. The problem was the road just wasn't reopened in order to help the, the people or to help us with the Tiger Reserve. The road was reopened so that tens of thousands of people could come in. In the course of this interim, the population of Hukong Valley went from 12 to 15,000 possibly to over 50,000 and eventually up to 100,000 because of one thing and one thing only, gold. Gold. Now, gold had been known in Hukong Valley for over 100 years, but all of a sudden they figured they would bring in other people and other technology to really try to extricate that gold. When I was standing in this exact same spot in 1999, it was unbroken forest all the way to the mountains with the Hulax gibbons calling and animal sounds and, and tiger tracks through this. Now, we're not even talking about huge amounts of gold here. This, this amount of gold was what was taken from that hole in the ground in a week's work. Now, as soon as I heard that, you know, it's interesting hearing the reaction of people because people hear that and say, that's horrible. When I heard that, I said, that's great. That's great because that means we can fight this. That's not much gold. They're not getting much. One week's work, that was equal at the time to about 12,000 shots, uh, about $12. But that was enough money in the poverty-stricken backcountry of Burma to make it worthwhile for them still to do this. We could address this. If they were making tens of thousands of dollars, we'd have a tough time. But this could be stopped. This could be stopped. So I was thrilled. Now... Even the gold mining, as horrible as it looks, and as bad an effect it was having on certain portions of the landscape, we were still talking about a total area that was deforested of only a few hundred square miles. That's a few hundred square miles out of 9,000. It still could have been managed if it was just about gold mining. Unfortunately, it wasn't. It was mostly about how do you feed and supply this 50 to 100,000 new people in an area where, there are no, where, where, where it's cheaper to feed them wild game than to bring in and raise wild pigs or chickens. And there were no wild pigs or chickens. It also brought in many outsiders to do many other things, such as these wildlife traders who now came in to kill black bear just for the feet, just for the paws to sell to the, to the, to the Chinese traditional market. That's a gaur. That's one of the largest wild cattle species. No, it is the largest wild cattle. No, I actually don't know if it's the largest. I think wild water buffalo could be larger. It weighs about 2,000 to 2,500 pounds, and it is a wild cattle species. It is killed sometimes, as this man was doing, just for the horns to trade again onto the traditional medicine market. There, and these were all flowing towards border villages between Myanmar and China where everything and anything for animals were being sold. Things like not, not only the tiger skin, these are, these are, these are bare gallbladders. This is cereal liniment. There's bare gallbladders. 
And these are, these are tiger scrotum and penises. They were bringing in dynamite for dynamite fishing. All of a sudden, local people who had just fished for sustenance were now dynamiting the, the, the waters. And worst of all, what comes when you get hordes of people, cowboy towns, gold mines? What you get are always two things, prostitution and drugs. All of a sudden, opium had come into Hukong Valley. This bothered me more than anything else because this becomes the hardest to control. This right now is our hardest to control. People started clearing patches of forest in order to grow what they call the tears of the poppy. Opium, pure, pure opium to supply the gold miners so they could work incredibly long hours for incredibly low, low pay. Now, if all that wasn't bad enough to try to take on to make this a tiger reserve, there was one added component. All of what I have just showed you was not in the hands of the central government who had given me permission to make this a tiger reserve. It was in the hands of an insurgent army, the, the largest insurgent army in the entire country called the Kachin Independent Army, who, who had their main headquarters inside of Hukong Valley. Well, that's life, right? Are you going to walk away from protecting tigers because things get a bit tough? Then we don't protect anything. It just became a little more challenging, that's all. So I asked the government, I spent all my time with the realization that nothing was going to get done in Hukong Valley unless I got to the KIA, to the Kachin Independent Army. Now, at first, the central government wouldn't allow me to meet with the KIA, and at first, the KIA wouldn't meet with me because they didn't trust me, but all of that got worked out over time. And I was able to meet with the KIA. At first, they wouldn't allow me to go into their jungle headquarters they would only come out to the towns to see me. And I would talk with them there about what we wanted to do in Hukong, how it was in their best interest because it would be preserving their own land and heritage, how we could help them substitute for the money they were making on things like the gold mines and even the wildlife, the wildlife sales. Eventually, they not only allowed me to go into their jungle headquarters and stay there, but they also allowed me to actually go on patrol with the Kachin Independent Army subgroups who were wandering through the forest and patrolling it, often with no money and no food, so that they had to kill anything that they wanted to eat. After a while, we convinced them that, that it was in their own interest to save this forest and that it was in their own interest for us to supply them pigs and chickens inside of this area so that they could both sell stock instead of go shoot wild game, and they would have plenty of food to eat. At the same time, we spent time going around to all the local villages in the Hukong Valley, explaining to them what was going on, explaining what the intent was, and that setting up a multi-use taiga reserve, while it did restrict them in some of the activities they had always been used to doing, in the end, they would benefit far more in terms of what they had now and in terms of what they wanted than they would otherwise. Our Burmese education team, we had printed up posters of all the animals. The Burmese education team went, went around to all the villages, all the hunters, showing them what they had. Most of the people, as usual, most of the people living in the forest did, didn't even know what was out there. I spent time meeting with all the village headmen of every single village and all the top hunters 
trying to explain to them how this was, what they were doing was not sustainable. Now, they knew that. They knew it. They just didn't know what else, what their options were. We were talking about how to give them other options, how to make it a win-win for them as well as for the wildlife. Finally, when I felt like we were on solid ground, both with the local people, with the Kachin Independent Army, and with the numbers of tigers that we were bringing into the larger area, in March 2004, the Prime Minister signed Hukong Valley Tiger Reserve into existence, absorbing the wildlife sanctuary, although that still remains as the core of the tiger reserve, the inviolate core. We now had as a tiger reserve 9,000 square miles, larger than many small countries in the world and about the size of the state of Vermont. What can I say? It was huge. It was absolutely huge. And by being huge, I understood and all of us uh, understood that the only way it could work was with the full cooperation of all the people who were living inside. That's, that's, that's a perspective of how big it is. 2%. Myanmar is the largest country in Indochina. That represents 2% of the entire country. While we were waiting for that to be designated, we didn't want to lose time, so we also worked on two other protected areas which would join up the Hukong Valley Tiger Reserve with the far tiger, with the far reserve I had gotten established in the far north where there were no tigers called Kakaborazi. We now had a, a contiguous area of 13,000 square miles. Right now, 7% of Myanmar, well, right now it's almost 8% of Myanmar is now in protected areas. When I first entered the country in 1993, less than one-tenth of 1% was protected. But, I mean, that could make a great story and I could walk away from that. You cannot, you can, whether it's a small protected area or a big protected area, unless you have buy-in from the people, unless the local people who live inside or around that protected area truly accept it, not, by, not being by under a whip, but accept it as being in their own best interest, that there is no way a protected area can sustain itself, can work long into the future. So again, I asked the government to do something which was unheard of in the country. Again, in a country where it was literally illegal to have seven people gather in one place at one time. I asked them to let me have a meeting in the Kachin state, in the far northern Kachin state, bringing together 50 to 100 representatives of all the interests in Hukong Valley, all of them representatives of all the tribal groups, re representatives of the gold mines, of all of the, the, the other business interests, representatives of the military, representatives of the Kachin Independent Army, who actually didn't tell me they would come until the very last minute because they weren't sure they wanted to come, representatives of anyone and everyone who could come into that area, not only to talk about the fact that this was becoming a tiger reserve, but to hand it to them before we did anything to give to them. As I'm standing up here with you in the audience, I stood up there in front of them and said, I'm not going to do anything. You have to tell me what to do. You have to decide as a group what is in the best interest for this region. If you all vote down this tiger reserve and you feel it shouldn't be there, 
while it may be there on paper, I'll walk away. I'll go home because it won't work. If you feel it should be there, tell me what you need, what you want from it. I actually put that in their lap, much to the chagrin of the central government, who in fact had already signed it over. But I was telling the local people that I was going to walk away from it unless they agreed with, with, with it. I didn't want the, the old people coming. I wanted representatives of all of the younger generation of each of the different tribal groups. Tribal groups who, many of them rarely go run into one, one another, have almost never sat at the same table with one another. I, I wanted the sons of the headmen and the sons of the hunters. They came. Now, this is a picture that you might never see again. I might never see again. It's a crummy picture because it was taken because I wasn't allowed to be taking it. It was taken with, with my cell phone. This is a picture of three men who have never met. This is a picture of men who at the time of this meeting actually were in charge of armed groups who were standing off and firing at one another at one part of the Kachin state. This is the top commander of the Kachin Independent Army, who at that time was vice commander and now is the full commander. This is the general in charge of all of northern Burma. Not one of the prime dictators, but just a step below. One of the top military men in charge of all of the military forces. He's called the northern commander. This is the director of wildlife from Yangon. These three men, and especially these two men, who actually have armies fighting one another, had never met one another, no less sit down, sat down at the same table and broke bread with one another. They not only sat down, we broke the, all the groups up into working groups according to their status, according to whether they were businessmen, whether they were the, 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 the ethnic groups, or, or whether they were the top, top leaders of the different groups. And in these working groups, it, they were assigned to both vote on whether or not this Tiger Reserve should go ahead, and if so, what they wanted to happen in that Tiger Reserve. Now, I have to tell you, I expected, from, from how I had set the whole thing up, I expected to get a, a majority vote for the Tiger Reserve. What I did not expect, I never expected it, was that there was not one dissent now, you might say, well, nobody's going to dissent in public in Myanmar, but it wasn't in public. Everybody got to vote secretly and privately in an unmarked ballot, unnamed ballot. There was not one opposition to the Tiger Reserve. We had done our homework well. We had done our work well. What we had shown them and convinced them was that if I didn't protect this land, if we didn't get it protected, this land would be taken eventually, either by Burmese businessmen by foreign interests, by the Chinese coming in and just raping huge parts of northern Myanmar, this land would go no matter what. The way to save it, the way to save the, the cultural heritage of the Kachin, the way to save the economic sustainability for the businessmen and even for, for the gold mines was to protect it and to manage it sustainably. They all voted for it. And not only did they all vote for it, but what we talked about was how we could set up the area with development zones and with fully protected zones and with interim buffer zones 
to where people could live with wildlife. Now, at first people said, well, of course we live with wildlife. We've always lived with wildlife. But the way they had always lived with wildlife had always been adversarial. Living with wildlife meant killing wildlife. We were showing them a way where they could live with wildlife, where the wildlife could benefit. Now, this is no Disneyland scenario here. I'm not saying that there wouldn't be problems, and they knew that. But, but the wildlife could coexist. The young people would not grow up being proud of this kind of thing any longer. Now, what they wanted, it's not like they were born-again conservationists and said, oh, wonderful, let's just have tons of tigers roaming everywhere through our, through our plantations. They said, look, you want to do this? What you have to do for us, we've always lived in the wild. We could live with tigers and elephants and other things. What we can't do is we do not want our children to grow up the way we have grown up. This man, this is his job. Every day he runs rapids. He literally runs these rapids bringing, bringing thatching, selling it for pennies for house thatching, hut thatching to the local people. He and others... All they wanted, they didn't ask for colored TV sets or brick homes or satellite receivers. That will come later. They wanted better lives for their children. They wanted a healthier environment because this was, after all, the valley of death where most of the dying at this point was from malaria. They wanted a healthier environment where their children wouldn't become disfigured from conjunctivitis, where people wouldn't die of malaria, and they wanted some schools for their kids. They wanted generators. They wanted books. They wanted their kids to grow up and not have to do this. Well, that's what we wanted too. Because the more their children grew up like that, the better chance that this tiger reserve could work and be sustainable. So we agreed on that. We were totally in sync with that. In fact, I came prepared at that meeting not to just walk away and say, okay, don't worry, I'll come back and I'll do it. At that meeting, I was there with enough capital to immediately start meeting some of their requests. So by the time that meeting broke up, we had already set up a process to where the Kachin Independent Army would get a whole slew, 30, no, it was 130 fast-breeding pigs to start raising, 500 chickens to start raising. We were buying four generators for the local schools, and we were in negotiation with teachers to start manning their schools because nobody wanted to go into these remote areas. We, we had already hired a physician's assistant to go into the area and start giving out medicine for conjunctivitis and malaria. At the same, since that time, since that meeting in 2004, we have gathered guards. We do have guards. This is, can you imagine... This group is the majority of our group patrolling a place the size of the state of Vermont. It's in their hands. And this man is the most unbelievable man that there is. He's the chief of that place, Mint Mong. He's been threatened with death. He's been run off the road. He's had many people try to do some nasty things to him, mostly drug growers. But this is the people, these are the people who have been trained. And most of these people come from the different ethnic groups within the reserve. At the same time, the government uh, appointed 
40 policemen, special forces actually, police people, to become Asia's first group of wildlife police assigned only to the Hukong Valley. This was incredibly necessary because, as you know, in most countries, the guards, forest guards, are, are, are often not allowed to carry weapons and not allowed to make arrests. So only with, with these police can they actually enforce the law on the spot. And these groups, these men, go out and they patrol, not each day, not for days at a time. They patrol for weeks at a time, roaming through the jungle, living in the forest, looking for and protecting wildlife, and making sure that now, in the new Hukong Tiger Reserve, that things like this, that the big cats, as well as it is not just about cats here, but if, if we save the tigers, we're going to be wrapping up everything in the nutshell, that all the wildlife that had been hammered so long and that was on the verge of extirpation, Hukong Valley would have gone the rest of the way, would have gone the same way as the rest of Burma if this intervention hadn't occurred. These are now being safe. But at the same time, these same people on patrol visit all the villages and make sure that medicine is getting to where it's getting, that the schools are running, that the gas is not being siphoned off of generators, that, that the things we want to put in place are truly being put in place. I mean, it's an amazing thing. I have been, I have been accused more than once by the media. I have been hammered by the media, by certain aspects of the media, because they say I should not be working in a country which so abuses human rights. It's the, it's the human rights agenda. Those people are hammering me from Thailand and from the United States and from Europe and from Japan. Meanwhile, I, I don't see anybody else up there giving these people medicine. I, I don't see anybody else up there helping these people's schools. I don't see anybody else up there who, who's not even a human rights activist doing as much as we are in the Taiga Reserve to make sure that the people's lives are bettered as well as the tiger is saved. So I challenge any of those people to just come and help us. That's all. You want to help people? Come and help the people. Because it does no good, no matter what you think of the politics of a country, to, to turn your back on the people. And this area is going to work. This is now a model for, for conservation. It's not going to be a Bambi Disneyland it's not going to be, the problems are not finished. We're just starting with our problems. I give the KIA pigs, you know, if the tigers come back, we're going to start having tiger-pig conflicts. We're going to start having uh, tiger-wildlife conflicts. But the fact is, if you want to save animals, you must do it in a way that works in the broader human landscape. You, you must realize that conservation is not an end game. It doesn't stop. There's no end point to it. You can't walk away from it. You must always watch it and manage it. You must realize that conservation, successful conservation, especially at this scale, but really any scale, is a dynamic disequilibrium, a disequilibrium, and that you are always constantly trying to balance those scales against one another and bring it back into a temporary equilibrium. But you always must be working on it, and we will 
and the tigers will survive, and you will have tigers in Hukong Valley for your children and your children's children. But that's not enough. That is not enough. Because if the tigers are in desperate shape, tigers are down to 3% of their historic home range, 3%. We're on the verge of blinking out with the tigers. And, and, and it doesn't have to happen. Because the amount of tiger landscape still out there is significant. If we just bring back tigers in, in, in some reasonable numbers within existing tiger landscape, we can have not two to 3,000 tigers, which are left now, but tens of thousands of tigers. I don't mean hundreds of thousands of the way we might have had at one time, but tens of thousands. So while Hukong Valley is on the verge of being a major success, there is no way we can stop here. What we have done, mostly due to an incredible group called Panthera, is we have now funded an initiative called Tigers Forever, where we do not accept the demise of tigers, just like I would not accept somebody taking away Hukong Valley or Hukong Valley failing. The demise of tigers does not have to happen. And to prove it, we, we have picked seven to eight key long-term sites, tiger sites, throughout Tiger Range, where we are now working over the next 10 years, and we have made a promise that we will show that you can increase tigers by a minimum of 50% over 10 years. Minimum. I expect it will be much more in certain areas. If you just focus your resources and your aim on what is killing tigers in a limited area, then we'll branch out. And we will show how to save tigers. And there is no doubt in my mind, no doubt, that we will have tigers again in the future. I know some people doubt it. I do not. Tigers will su survive, not as they have in the past, but we will have wi wild tigers for many, many, many generations to see in the future. And what happens beyond that, that'll be in the hands of those generations. Thank you very much. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org.